today we're going to be looking at poetiquette, which poetiquette is a word that Timothy Green invented, my co-host here, who will be joining us shortly. And there he is right now. I was just saying poetiquette, which to be honest, I had a hard time remembering how to spell with the two T's because I am the world's worst speller. <laughs> Go ahead and add Tim as a co-host and hope to get him up here shortly. Hey, Arjun. Hey, George. Hey, Carla. Hey, Dick. Hope you guys are all doing good today. And Tim, how are you? <laughs> he's not doing the best so far, but I think he's going to be with us in just a second. And I'll go ahead. And I think everybody who's here is going to be invited to be a speaker so far. You guys are all super cool and super timely, which is a good episode to be on time for, too, <laughs> with the subject at hand. Hey, Katie, I think I'm back now. Can you hear me now? I can. So we need a weather report <laughs> from you <laughs> well, it is start off the show. Yes, yeah, so I'm up in the mountains of Southern California, where we're getting the biggest storm since 1989. And the forecast is for six feet, I believe. Or getting close to six feet anyway. And right now we have the first three inches, I'd say. <laughs> so it's just starting. But it's going to be a long uh, a long snowy couple days for sure. I hope you have a lot of hot chocolate and a lot of books of poetry. You <laughs> definitely have there. them and <laughs> yeah, a big supply of that. So let's start with a with opening poem here. And this poem I think has a lot to do in a strange way with what we're going to be talking about on the space today. This is The Sound by Kim Ananizio. It's one of my favorite modern sonnets where it's got a really heavy and gem and you almost don't realize it's a sonnet that rhymes until you get through the end of it and see the last couplet. But uh, this is a sound by Kim Adonizio. Mark says the suffering that we don't see still makes a sort of sound, a subtle soft noise, nothing like the cries of screams that we might think of, more the slight scrape of a hat doffed by a quiet man, ignored as he stands back to let a lovely woman pass, her dress just brushing his coat. Or else it's like a crack in an old foundation, slowly widening the stress and slippage going on unnoticed by the family upstairs, the daughters leaving for a date, her mother's resigned sigh when she sees her. It's like the heaving of a stone into a lake before it drops. It's shy. It's barely there. It never stops. And so I think that is a, a good kind of example of the way bad behavior in poetry feels because it feels like that's sort of a silent, it's such a slight thing when, when things go poorly, uh, given how little is at stake in poetry, really. Uh, but still, it's there, and it spreads from one person to another. So I thought that was a good poem to start out with, whereas we're talking about poetiquette. It definitely does. And I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, it can color the whole space, uh, which I'm not using intentionally as a pun, but I guess I just <laughs> did, if there is poor etiquette. I'm a big believer in etiquette, I was in charge of etiquette back in my days in my sorority. So this is like calling, <laughs> calling to arms all of my skills in speaking about this. So I'm really excited to go ahead and get into this today. Yeah, I'm terrible with etiquette. How, how is your, um, I mean, I just don't know what the conventions are. I, I, did you find that when you were in a sorority and had that, that uh, there were random rules or did everything make sense? Because to me, it just seems like treating other people with respect and as actual human beings is just the key to... Uh, the etiquette but what do you think that is definitely the key like i don't think it matters where you place your fourth fork for example in life maybe in a poem it does though yeah. so there's that i guess 
but it is definitely something that is like, you know, some rules are arbitrary, but a lot of them are things that actually help. Like it was funny because I was, I won't go off on this too long, but I seriously opened the etiquette Emily post book because I was very curious and I happened to own my grandmother's copy. And I was talking about how you should not wait for people if they're more than 15 minutes late. And that's like actually in the book, which is kind of like a convention, but it's just funny that it actually started out being written down. Yeah, that is. So I think that's a good maybe, good rule. I think I'll have to start employing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking as I did that too, like today, Tim's probably going to be late for the first time. And it'll be after that 15 minute mark. And what will I do? <laughs> <laughs> no, it just takes a long time to turn on the co-host button. Uh, but anyway, what do you want to start with first? Do you want to start with talking about the NFT side? Because George's essay was the, the impetus for that. But then on the other side, Becky Touche just happened to have an article uh, that kind of went viral about how terrible uh, a couple of lit mags are behaving and, and presses. Uh, where do you want to start? I'm super interested to get into both topics. But I think with George being here and being our guest during this very proper edition of the Poetry Space, we should go ahead and get into that. So, George, do you want to be the one to go ahead and tell us about the article that you wrote for Mirror, which is an NFT article um, about looking at the ethics of minting poems that, you know, have been on other chains? Sure, I can uh, <clears throat> I can give a rundown of it. Uh, because of my emulator, I can't post anything up to the top. So I don't know, Katie, if you want to find where I've got the tweet. It's Unfortunately, it's not my, it's not my, main tweet but it's like it's down there somewhere but, but uh if someone yes. could post link to it, I will yeah, definitely, yeah i'll definitely go ahead and pin that right now okay cool so so there is this general just in in summary uh so there's there's a, a general sense among the nft community that uh uh you know scarcity is very important right because the nft when people want to buy nfts they're like oh well there's only you know two two copies of this and so based on that scarcity i'm going to invest in this nft you know blah blah, blah. um and a lot of people don't realize that that, that uniqueness uh, is specific to a blockchain. So, for example, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from, from uh, minting, say, a poem on one blockchain and the identical poem on another blockchain other than social convention. And the convention right now is that, oh, you shouldn't do that because it could, it could be misleading. So, for example, someone on Ethereum, they think there's only five copies of this poem, so they think they're buying something that's you know, one out of five, but in reality, there's another five on Tezos that they didn't know about because they never go on Tezos. And this this reflects one of the problems about uh, 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 blockchain being silos. And so uh, I was thinking that from a literature standpoint, it doesn't make too much sense because to, to follow that social convention because we want as many people to read our poems as possible or as many people to buy our books as possible. So it would seem logical to enable or to, 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 to consider it to be socially acceptable to mint the same book or the same block or the same poem on separate blockchains in order to get a wider audience. And then to come up with some way of letting any potential buyer know, hey, the, even though you're buying this on a marketplace and it says there's only three copies, you know, check this scarcity link, for example, that'll, that'll be a link to a web page that maybe you wrote or something that'll tell you all the blockchains where you've minted it so that you have an, a, an idea of, uh, of what the scarcity is. Uh, and so it's just, it's just the, the article I wrote was basically a little bit of research I did on people's uh, uh, points of view on this, on this kind of thing. And, uh, and then I, I, I outlined a little way of, of, of one way, I think maybe if you, if, you, if you believe in the ability 
to if you believe authors should have the ability to multi to mint the same thing on multiple blockchains without being frowned upon, then if you follow this set of guidelines, that might give you an idea of, of how to start. Um, so, anyways, I, I wrote the article. You guys can read it, uh, you know, at your leisure. Yeah, definitely. I found it really interesting the idea of if it's ethical or almost to to do this because, like you're saying, you're really not seeing many people that are doing it. For me, I think with NFTs, the reason that I wouldn't want to go ahead and mint the same NFT across uh, different platforms or even different blockchains is just because of the fact that I'm trying to curate my pieces into collections that make more sense on a given platform. So, like you know, foundation is uh, my premium, so to speak, brand, you know, where I put what I think are the poems that have taken me the longest and that are the most expensive pieces as well. So I feel like that kind of dilutes it. And I'm not really a fan of, of, I feel like it kind of takes one of the really neat aspects of an NFT, possibly the best, which is having, you know, this complete linked proof and ledger of where this poem has existed and dilutes it and doesn't take the most advantage of an NFT, which I would be very interested to hear from any of the other NFT poets that are here. Um, more and more of them are both mainstream poets and NFT poets, which is pleasing me, but cries. I would be very curious to hear what you had to say about this kind of thing in particular. Yeah, I'd be happy to weigh in. Um, so what in particular do you think I should touch on? I think it's just a, a broad topic like organizing collections or simultaneous publishing. Like, Is there a more I, focused question yeah. that you want to tackle? I would say um, most specifically how you feel about the same NFT being minted on two different platforms uh, with the caveats that George was talking about i.e. it's not hidden, you know, George is talking about in the description, uh, putting a link so that you can see the scarcity and measure it. How would you would feel about that? Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, transparency kind of rules all in, in crypto and, and NFTs, just in terms of the ethos behind the community in general. So as long as, like, if we're assuming that the artist is being uh, upfront about, um where else they are are publishing their work or, or minting their work. I think it then becomes less a um, etiquette question than a marketing question for the artist, because if they're, like, as you said, if you're trying to um, put together cohesive collections with some sort of a common thread, like maybe you're doing um, open editions on OpenSea, which is, you know, kind of a more, um, commoditized platform, we can call it, or and then you're doing like one of one kind of very unique stuff on foundation or super rare or these more kind of, um, I guess, uh, exclusive platforms. Um, I think that's more of a like that's just a marketing choice for the author. Um, but if you're doing the same, if you're minting the same NFT on multiple platforms, I don't know, it might give you maybe some more. Um, visibility out of the gate because maybe more people will see it at once, but I, I think it would ultimately hurt the artist's um, longer term prospects uh, because if people start finding that there's kind of a um, let, there's more supply of the same thing in different places, it's kind of like you know going into a bookstore and seeing you know a thousand copies of whatever you know the the Barnes and Noble employees of the month, you know, want to pick for people to look at. It kind of, it doesn't feel as boutique as, you know, someone saying, 
oh, I read this great book. You should check it out. And you get the last copy of it when you go to, you know, your corner bookstore. So I think it's, it's just more of a marketing question than an etiquette question in, in, in my view. It's interesting. There's a, a identical analog to that in the traditional publishing world, which is uh, double dipping into uh, other literary magazines, which is something that comes up. I didn't really realize this was an issue until I was talking to uh, Raymond Hammond, who's a longtime publisher of New York Quarterly and uh, New York Quarterly Press. And he was talking about how he found somebody who plagiarized once. So he started running his um, everything he publishes through a plagiarism checker. And what he found wasn't plagiarism so much as that certain poets published the same poems over and over again in different magazines, thinking that nobody will notice. And so since then, I started doing the same thing and Googling. Um, we're using a, a checker sometimes, but that costs money now. But um, Googling poems just to see if they'd appeared before. And it happens a lot. You catch people a lot. And the thing, again, is uh, transparency, like you talked about, too. Like what we ask for as a publisher is a kind of scarcity is like, this is the magazine that this poem is in. And so we ask people to say, you know, this mag this poem hasn't been published in any other magazines or books yet. And then we look back and find out, Oh, it was in Alaska quarterly review in 1994. <laughs> and uh, then we don't publish the poem. And so that happens fairly often actually. And uh, I understand the mistake of not having good record keeping um, but it is an issue that people do. They try to get more exposure by doing that. And it, I think it damages in two ways. Uh, first of all, it, in this case, um, the, the issue for me is that there's so many people trying to get poems in the magazines. And this poem, these poems have already had a certain life. And now they get a second life and they're crowding out other poems that haven't had any life. And so I think that's unfair to the other people submitting primarily but then as well, you, you have that scarcity issue where if you're you know, seeing the same poems over and over again in different magazines, it just it ruins the, uh, the, the appeal of reading a magazine. And so it is an issue. But as long as people are upfront about it, I'm always fine with it. Um, you know, depending on if, if the poem has been published, there's some second run magazines that, that let you, you know, do reprints. And I've argued for uh, the local magazine in particular. I thought it was a great thing if the local um, Inland Empire magazine we have here would allow imprints, so you kind of get a look at it, what local authors are doing um, at the same time. So I think it's great as long as it's up front. And, and I think everything should be up front and not secret though. And that's when problems start to emerge. So something that, sorry, Katie, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Mark, that's great. So something that um, I think is, is quite a bit of a sea change in the ability to, to put uh, art out in the world from an NFT context is that the, like the structures of traditional publishing is that, you know, as an, uh, speaking as an author, you know, you submit a poem or a book somewhere and then your, your expectation, I think after, you know, doing it for a little while is that you're never going to hear back or, um, you're, you might hear back maybe in six months or nine months when the, the publication, um, and of course, this varies from publication to publication. So um, this is all very kind of broad brush. But I think the the structures in traditional publishing have kind of it, it's accepted by a lot of authors that they're just not going to hear anything. So um, they're just going to try every avenue they can, and maybe just by good slash bad luck, depending on how you look at it maybe they get something published in a couple of places at once where 
if you're if you're minting nfts like that's everything is so immediate so the the question is not whether or not um, you will have the opportunity to be published because you are doing the publishing like unless you're going through some sort of a curated um, uh, entity like you know the verse first is one that comes to mind but if you're just minting yourself like kind of the analog of you know would be self-publishing and in traditional publishing is is it's just so immediate so you're it becomes not if i'm getting published but should i actually do this so i, I can see some authors in in uh traditional publishing kind of skirting that moral issue uh, by by just saying well that's just kind of the structure i'm dealing with and not to say that i I agree or disagree. Again, I think it's all transparency, but I can see where people would be coming from just trying to get their work out there and 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 scattershotting it across a bunch of publications and and not being upfront about it, thinking that they're justified because the the lead times on responses and the just the general lack of, of feedback to individual authors, given the the sheer volume of stuff that publishers have to deal with, like all these. Like Tim, I'm sure you just get avalanches of stuff. Like I can't imagine. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's a bit of a moral shortcut that that authors take when they're kind of weighing this issue. Yeah, one thing to correct though, you're speaking of etiquette. I think it'd be bad etiquette for any publisher to publish anything without uh, notifying the author first. I think as you submit things, you know, there are a few places who have done that that I've heard of, and it's a very big sort of faux pas for the publisher to publish something, even if it was submitted without contacting the author first. And I would never do that at Rattle, never have. I don't publish anything without a signed contract. So, I mean, I think that's the norm. Some people are more informal and just do it by email, but there's, there's gotta be some communication. So the people who do that know exactly what they're doing. It's not like they accidentally publish it in two places. They just think no one will notice and they can get away with spreading their work farther. Um, which, you know, is a very understandable, uh, you know, thing to want. Everybody wants their work to be spread as widely as possible. But we're in such a an ecosystem that's so tough and there's so little pie to go around that it's sort of, you have to think about the community too, I think, and and share pieces of the pie as, um, as you will. So I think that's an important part of it. I think, I think something else to keep in mind is, uh, you know, this, it's a complicated question because there's lots of different angles. But Besides the angle from the writers, there's there's also the angle from the reader. So let's say that you uh, you are on a blockchain and you have you're used to a blockchain. It took you a long time to figure out the wallet stuff and all this kind of business. And you know you got your Matic because you're on Polygon or whatever. And then you find something that you really want, um, but it's on Tezos. And so now it's like, well, if you wanted to get that, you have to get a Tezos wallet. You got to learn about Tezos. You got to, you know, it, it, it puts a barrier in front of the buyer as well as, as well as the writer. And, and that's a little bit different between the NFT world and the publishing world, because I, I guess unless, unless you, you can speak the language in which something is published on paper, you know, like say you're an English speaker, you know, uh, and, and you have access to a magazine, well, that's all you need, right? It's that there's no there's no further uh, 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 impediment on you being able to go in and read the poem. Uh, but if if you know if a poem was only published in Portuguese, for example, and you were not fluent in Portuguese, then you know then then there's a problem. For me, though, I view that as like a really powerful aspect of NFTs because I know 
George, when we were first becoming friends, I was only minting on OpenSea. And then I looked over and saw what was going on in Object when I started seeing these poems being made. And it pulled me over to the Tezos chain because what was going on there was a lot more interesting. You know, and the fact is with NFTs, as so many in this space can attest, there is a learning curve and it's just kind of inevitably part of it. But I think that it creates um, more of a condition where the market can allow the best platforms to rise to the top in a way that, you know, traditionally published journals, like it's probably a lot harder because it would just take radically more time for the same thing to be accomplished. So I think that Dick Westheimer has his hands up. He tweeted at the beginning of the space that he had a lot of thoughts. So I have high hopes for what he has to say about this. So go ahead, Dick, whenever you'd like to. Um, well, I, I, I didn't want to change the subject from NFTs unless you all were ready to. I did have an NFT poetry question, but most most of my comments and questions are just sort of for, for traditionally published. So I can hold off until the NFT discussion is in, I am looking at the crowd, and the crowd that we have right now is a very good crowd in terms of being able to move between both traditional poems and crypto poetry. So I think whatever you want to say goes, and we can all just flow with you. Okay, good. Um, so uh, the 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 original question you all asked about the um, um, or that you asked Katie about uh, uh, publishing on different platforms sort of raises a um, I'll call it a philosophical question about the word etiquette and whether etiquette and ethics um, overlap. Where do they overlap? You know, what what is? Uh, and and I think that's a larger discussion. But it just sort of came to mind that when you were talking about, you know, there is an ethical responsibility folks have. Um, is that the same as an etiquette responsibility? Which prompted me to go and look up the entomology of etiquette which is from the French, a ticket. It is a ticket to uh, um, basically, um, uh, I guess, to polite society that you have, um, that you have ascribed to or a prescribed system of, of behavior. And I think that's sort of an interesting, it might be that the word etiquette might not be exactly what the topic is. It's more the the sort of ethical and i and finally on the nft i had a question for tim just a real practical one i know that you'll take poems that some people have published on social media will you take poems in the future not associated with your uh, nft issue that have been sold as nfts for me i don't think so i think the um i think the act of minting and, and making it um, collected in that way is a kind of curation, which is what I would want to avoid. I want to publish poems that are not curated elsewhere. And so if somebody is, if something's up for sale, it's the same principle that I would use for um, self-publishing books. So a lot of people say, well, you know, my book isn't, my chapbook for a chapbook contest wasn't published by a traditional publisher. I just put it on Amazon's great space. But uh, if that's available for sale and it's a collected work, um, it's curated by you, but it's still curated into a body. Um, and I think having a collection, I mean, we use that terminology in NFTs is it's collected when it's put into a series of poems. And I think that act is enough to, to count in, in my regard, which is I'm much more interested in the curation aspect of it. I think, you know, if there, I think there's a good reason that someone might want to be the first to curate a poem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but then, and I think that, and I think that matters. Yeah. So I would say no on, on, on minted poems, except for the issue that we have coming up, of course, because that's what it's focused right. on. Yeah. I love, I love that word curation as opposed to, um, editing. Um, you're, you're cur curating a collection. I think you use that at the very first, uh, the very first space you sort of introduce that. And I don't know whether that, that word has any currency among other editors, but I think it's a great way to think about, um, about what, what the work is. Um, so, yeah, well, a secret, let me cut in there, Dick. Uh, there's a secret, which I'll share for all the people in, uh, in the space here. I'm starting to use that word and I'm working on, on my to-do list is to, to push for that to be in use. I'm going to be writing an essay about that, arguing for the use of curation instead of publication. And if you check the issue of Rattle, that's about to come in the mail any day now. Look at the uh, guidelines on the front page. It says that we we'll, uh, we accept previously uncurated poems instead of unpublished poems. So I've made that switch, and I'm going to be trying to make all the publishers just out of guilt make that switch too, because I think with curation we can include things that are published on social media. It's not an antiquated concept. Yeah, that that um, you know because yeah, and so I think you know we want to be we want to be curated. That keeps it unique and it keeps it special what we're doing. Um, and it keeps that scarcity, that value through scarcity, where it's not everywhere in the world, um, while allowing people to communicate and share poems on their own in the way that's so fun and rewarding. And so that's what we're going to be moving toward, which is always what we did at Rattle. And that was always the policy. I just, I didn't like this solution, but I always said that, you know, we accept poems for publication or that have been, we don't accept poems that are previously published, but we don't consider self-hosting places as publication, but that's not true. It's just an accurate statement. So I've never liked it. So I'd like to switch to curation. Well, I, 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 I like that a lot. And that brings up one of the things I was thinking about with, with in terms of etiquette is specifically with regard, regards to sort of the, um, um, the notion of etiquette as, as something that, that has to do with um, elevated society as so many rules conventions of the poetry world and poetry editors, not curators, is sort of maintaining a status quo, maintaining sort of um, an elevated power that the um, editors have rather than thinking about what they're doing as sort of a role um, in the um, in, in the poetry ecosystem. And I think that's one of the things that breeds a lack of etiquette or impoliteness or actually hostility among some people who submit poems that they, um, you know, first of all, you're in that psychological state where you have submitted, right? You've, you've actually submitted to an editor who will reject you or accept you, you know, it, it's like so complicated. Um, and so if people respond to rejections, and I'm sure you see this, Tim, but we see it out in the wild, as it were, uh, where people are, are like angry and resentful and like have all of these sort of emotional feelings about, um, you know, the ulterior motives of, of, of editors. And I think part of the reason is, is that editors are very happy to maintain some editors please, some editors, because so many are, are <laughs> like you, Tim, they're just trying to like promote the practice of poetry and, and, and collect, curate great work. But some of them, I think, really relish their role as, um, you, you know, the, the acceptor or rejector role, you know, that, that, that the power that they have accumulated, um, 
because of that. And I think that uh, the, cur the curation work, while it's subtle, goes a long way to sort of demystifying the role of, of an editor as sort of a, um, you know, a higher status than a poet. Um, and that's tough. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, one of the things we should talk about here too, in that line between ethics and edit or ethics and etiquette is the idea of a, of a, um, a term of art, which is what we want to do. So, so etiquette is a, like a posting that you would put on the wall before you enter someone's house. Like, like, please take off your shoes before entering my house. That was the original meaning, like you mentioned for, for the word etiquette. And so it becomes this rule of, of good behavior and manners. Like I would, if you're entering my house, I would like you to do this. And if you don't, then don't come into my house. And then what happens with, um, when we as a body as an industry um or as a community is we end up establishing a regular set of etic etiquette and that becomes terms of art and so that's why we use publication in a certain way and what i'd like to do is have a new term of art that would be um that would be this curation versus publication and i think that that once we can establish that as a term of art then um then we can move forward. And I do think uh, too, it's interesting you brought up the responses we get, because that's one of the things we wanted to talk about. Um, we get really nasty responses, of course. I mean, I've shown Katie a couple of them over the last couple of weeks. And um, it is, it is interesting to get, you know, you in, with that negativity bias that comes in too, you send out some rejections and it is weird terminology that people submit and then they're either accepted as if we're accepting their being as worthy of existence or that's rejected. And um, and then some of the people reply very graciously back, and that's the majority. But then because of negativity bias, you hear the the people who um, – I think it was the last person called me. Oh, they said that uh, my my head looks like a boil, and I'm the demented love child of the two people on Breaking Bad. I can't remember, Jesse and, and the, <laughs> the Cranston guy. And um, – and, and, you know, like comments like that come back and they're just crazy. And people come and threaten to, you know, beat me up and, and all sorts of stuff just for uh, passing on a poem, even trying to be as friendly as possible. So it's a really interesting thing to uh, experience day after day to the point where um, I try not to send rejection letters at night because I found that people are more drunk in the middle of the night and uh, they're more likely to get sober people during the day. <laughs> so a lot of times I've, when I get nasty messages like that, I say, Hey, something or other. And, reply in a way and then in the morning they wake up and apologize so that that happens a lot too uh i'm so sorry on behalf of all the poetry <laughs> you have to put up with that that's really messed up especially when you're doing great things like coming up with the term curation which i think it's really interesting too i have to jump back to that i know we're going to talk about simultaneous submissions next but i have to say with thinking about curation as like a term of art it's so interesting because the way that i picture talking about curation um, versus publication or all the other terms is like I picture you Tim and you know editors like you being like the Paris salon and then it's like you know versus like saying you want to say to people hey you can hang up your art in your own house just when you want to come and put it somewhere special then like I'm the Paris salon you don't you know put it in another gallery and then put it in the Paris salon so for anybody <laughs> into French art you will hopefully have understood my antiquated analogy but I, I did want to ask Tim because, you know, I talked to you a while ago about simultaneous submissions. And I think that Rattle was one of the first that changed to allowing simultaneous submissions a lot more frequently because 15 years ago, it used to be like almost rare 
that you could find a place where you could submit at the same time your poems to multiple places. Yeah, we were one of the first. But before we talk about that, let me just say one last thing about the curation thing. Is that another thing I love about it is that it makes in the NFT space, it makes every collector a curator, which is I like that too. It's decentralizing the act of that's been traditionally the role of a publishing house. And so by collecting, you become your own curator. And you know, everybody has their accounts where they're collecting things and usually they're public and you can see what's been collected. And if you're a really great collector that has great taste, you can find people that like you. And, um, you know, like the stuff that you like, and then you become a curator for that on your own. And I think that's one of the real powerful things that NFTs have going for it. Um, but anyway, besides for that, um, so as far as simultaneous submissions, yeah, this is one of the things. So, so I, I'm not sure how much credit I can take for it, but back in 2004 or five, when we started, almost every magazine did not allow simultaneous submissions. Most submissions were postal. Um, we were the first at Rattle, or one of the first to accept email submissions too, um, but, but so with postal submissions, you know, people get a box and it usually takes six months or more for it to get back. And they still said no simultaneous submissions because they thought that it was so much work going into reading and considering the poems when it's a huge box of envelopes to open, sift through that if they picked one, they wanted to be sure that it was available for publication and everything moved so much slower back then in the pre, you know, at the dawn of the internet days, and so it was really uncommon to allow simultaneous submissions, but we, you know, we blatantly encouraged it to the point where I um, started telling people that if the magazine doesn't allow it, they should just ignore that rule as an unjust rule. Um, and eventually, um, it just became the norm that almost everywhere allows simultaneous submissions. It's sort of a, you know, frowned upon as bad etiquette for a magazine to not allow simultaneous submissions at this point, which is why I have a, a lot of a hope for being able to make curation a concept that works um, in the same way. Whereas if somebody doesn't use that terminology, it'll be something to look down upon in the same way as simultaneous submissions are. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it's what gives me so much hope that you are gonna be successful leading the charge, changing it to concept of curation, because I think that the absolute best thing we can do for poetry is Really, I mean, that's it. I mean, that's hyperbolic, but I really think it is. It's to stop this antiquated thing of you can't share a poem on social media and still have it published. Like, it just incentivizes everybody to not share their poems. And it's awful. People should be sharing their poems. Most poems do not get published. So just put them out there is how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, it's been so detrimental to just poetry as an art form that we can't do the thing that feels best. You know, so many people, even on our Rattlecast, the, the podcast we do, there's open lines for an hour. And only some people are brave enough to share poems because they're worried that someone will think it's published if it's been put into the public in that space, even in a different medium. It's video and audio um, and not text-based and not searchable on Google. And still, people are so worried. I've, many people have said, oh, I'd love to share that, but I don't want to, I want to publish it later. And, and how, how much fun is it to share poems, whether it's social media, whether it's an open mic like that? whether it's at a, you know, at a coffee shop open mic too, like the fun is, is sharing poems and then to have to delay a year or two before it's published, just so some magazine with a circulation of a thousand, maybe if you're lucky can, can publish it to their people who might read it. I mean, it's just such a detriment, such a drag on the joy of it really, and, and such a spiritual thing that, that creativity is. And it's a drag on that spirit and I really hate it. So that's why I really want to change that. Yeah, I tried to change that by writing a poem 
about how <laughs> how places won't publish poems that have been shared on social media. And my attempts to get that published for some reason did not work out after I shared it on social media. <laughs> I wonder why that is. But it is an NFT, which I can say because it's not even for sale, so I'm not shilling anything. But <laughs> it's out there. And it makes me happy. You know, once you share a poem on social media, it, it's, it really is kind of addictive. As you can see, yesterday I tweeted like 75 poems. So it, it just becomes something where the more you do it, the more you want to share your poems. And of course, NFTs are an amazing solution for that as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm poetic uh, or or chaotic good. I mean, on that whole Dungeons and Dragons chart, there I'm not lawful good. So I think that if there's a rule, it's unjust. Just break it. And so, um, so I post poems on social media and read them on the Rattlecast and submit them, and nobody's ever said anything. So there's that too. Yeah, definitely. I think that too, with it already being 37 minutes past the strictly etiquettely adhered to hour in the poetry space, we should probably go ahead and talk about the Becky Tuck article. For anybody that didn't see it, it should be pinned at the top and was a pretty huge deal when it came out in literary circles. And Tim, do you want to walk us through it a little bit for anybody that didn't read the article? Yeah, well, she's been on the on the heels of uh, Pank magazine, which used to be one of the most influential magazines around. It was a really wonderful one, um, or uh, run by Roxane Gay was one of the founders, and they published a lot of great work, both poetry and fiction and nonfiction. And then when when Roxane and whoever she was working with decided it was too much and they wanted to move on, um, someone else purchased it, and then sort of everything went downhill. Uh, as far as, you know, submission fees went up, so people were charging a lot for submissions and then not getting any reply. They were accepting things for publication and uh, and then disappearing, just ghosting authors. Um, books, you know, they were published books too and authors weren't getting paid. And so Tracy's been complaining about, or not Tracy, I mean, uh, uh, Becky has been complaining about Pank for, for a year, I think. But she did some legwork and realized that a whole bunch of other presses are all run by the same people who purchased them in kind of the same way and have taken over sort of magazines as they go defunct, making money off of submissions um, without really, um, according to some anyway, without really putting forth the product that they promised. And so they're kind of scamming people and making money on submission fees, apparently, or so it seems. So um, that's the, the basis of that article. And that happens so much. And there's so many scams in the poetry world that are worth talking about. But but that's the that's the, the one that's going on right now. And when Becky wrote that, it kind of went viral. And some of the people um, who were authors there defended the press and said that, hey, they put out my book and it was fine. Everything was great. Um, so there's some controversy about whether or not how accurate that is as well. Yeah. I, I in the article really was impressed by how it looked like she was really trying to examine both sides of the story and to search for answers in a very genuine way. I'll also say that you can't claim there's no money in poetry if there are all these people trying to scam it, Tim. You can't keep saying that. <laughs> it sounds like a poker scandal, not a poetry one, but this is a poetry world scandal. Yeah, I mean, there's ways that you can manipulate people. I mean, the thing that the, the thing that I think about the most, which is so sad, is that um, I had, they changed their name all the time, but it was poetry.com. And for a long time, they were called Poetry Society International. And they were called like, no, I don't even know. They have so many different names. But but what they do is that who's who scam. And it happened to me. I don't know if this happened to you or anybody else. But when I was in um, um, a freshman, I think, of high school, the uh, guidance counselor called me into her office, me and my friend Tom, 
and said, you've been chosen for who's who in America. And it's one of the few blah, blah, blah. And you're, you know, one of the smartest people because of this. And so me and Tom were super excited. Maybe it was eighth grade. And me and Tom were super excited, came home and then looked at the actual letter we got and they wanted us to buy a book. <laughs> and I realized that the whole thing was just a scam um, in order to buy like a $200 book and to get in some registry. And it was just a vanity thing. Uh, which goes, you know, it's been going on for a long time in who's who, but then Poetry Society of America or, or whatever they're called, not Poetry Society of America, Poetry International, whatever it is, they change it all the time. They do the same thing. And they got my grandma, my poor old grandma. Was, um, I know. Grandma. No. Yeah, because what they do is they, they say it's, they're running a poetry contest. It's free to enter. And then everybody's a winner. And, but your special is a winner. And you can... Uh, have your book in the mail for only $200 leather bound. And once you do that, you're so invested. There's that whole um, cognitive dissonance kind of thing. The same thing cults use. And once you're invested in paying a $200 book, well, it's not so much to have, you know, a special recognition plaque. And then it's not so much to go to this conference where all the award winners will be. And they just kind of gouge people out of more and more money. They're pressing them along this path. And I just remember my grandma being so excited about being a winner for this poetry uh, dot com scam and I didn't have the heart to tell her so she still she bought the book and it was sitting on her mantle the whole time and I didn't you know she died I think she never knew and so I'm glad of that but it's just poetry matters so much to so many people you know on such a personal deep level that it's really easy to take advantage of that you know there's a we have that that suffering that we don't hear we all have that that silent loneliness where we need validation and a sense of being heard and a sense of you know what art does and there are people out there that take advantage of that and they're all over the place and so we do have to be aware of that and as a good community we have to take take care of each other and find out when that's happening and try to spread the word so i think um um yeah so a lot of people have their hands up i'm talking too much who do you want to go to next katie uh, I think, George, you're not talking too much, first of all. That was a very interesting story. And then second of all, I think George had his hands up first. So let's hear from him, and then we'll go straight to Dick right after. Thanks. Uh, just real quick, I wanted to I wanted to let you know that uh, I was pulled in by the same scam when I was in high school. and But for me, the, the book that you have to buy was $10. And so once I got the book, you know, I was all excited, right? It's like, oh, you know, I got into this thing and I'm only in high school, blah, blah, blah. Then I started reading the other poems in there. And it's like, oh, man, I kind of, <laughs> you know, so I know, I know of what you speak. Yeah, let me add too. I, there's a way that they, they get people on board as well, because they actually have winners of their grand prize. And, um, and they get people to be judges too. So one of my poetry professors was, was Robert Mezzi, and I'll just name him, it's okay. He was a judge for Poetry Society International or whatever they're called. And, um, and so when, <laughs> it's a funny story, I was in his class and he was talking about being a judge or maybe I saw that he was a judge the year before, but I brought it up and said, hey, how come you're judging this scam contest? Doesn't that ruin your reputation or whatever. And he got really mad and offensive. <laughs> and then a few days later brought in a friend of his who had won a couple of years before he became judge. And so he'd won $20,000. I can't remember his name. Um, but he, you know, came in just to tell the class that this was a real competition. And, and once we have an investment in that, we're just so there's all that confirmation bias and the cognitive dissonance of not wanting to, you know, think that you're participating in a scam. So, so many people go along with it too, which is fascinating. And that's sort of all built into the system. It's really a cult-like, like a manipulation of human psychology on a lot of levels. Well, we're not doing that kind of thing in the world of NFTs, I have to say. So 
<laughs> good at least. Well, I think, I think, you know, people who are into NFTs have to be wary of this because once it becomes a thing that can be manipulated, it's a, it's a market niche that's going to be exploited. So there are going to be scams like this in the NFT world too. It's true, but I would say that in uh, crypto poetry, we're a lot more well-versed in uh, coming up with avoiding scams because it's just so ripe in the world of crypto. So maybe that will give us an advantage over over the uh, more traditional world. At least I like yeah, to that is, it. that is definitely true for <laughs> sure. It's a different demographic, and, and they they prey on people like my grandmother, you know, who um, you just don't know any better and get excited because they're for the first time somebody's telling them they're a good writer. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, the, and I oh, got I just hate I hate that kind of thing so much. So I mean, the way to combat it, like you're saying is community and speaking up when you know, when something bad is going on, like I actually have, I'm really annoyed by this contest that I entered, that's like a very small level poetry contest that had an entry fee. Uh, and has delayed announcing the winner now for four months. And I'm going to contact them. And if they don't, uh, if you don't give me some kind of a good response, I'm just going to out it on Twitter because, you know, people just need to know these things and people need to speak up and not be afraid to speak up when uh, the fears are founded. So, so Dick Westheimer, I'm sorry you've had your hands up for so long, but I would love to hear from you now. Well, first of all, my actual hand has not been up. So had the actual hand been up, I would have accepted your apology for my sore arm. But um, I assumed it was actually up. Oh, I sorry. You were a good speech, okay. speaker. I'll sign. I'll sign off and put my my actual hand up, and then you can you can call on me. Um, I, I, if you know the scam thing, I think um, is is sort of. Um, is obviously dramatic, but I think it's divorced a little bit from etiquette and and courtesy, right? It, it you know it's a crime, right? It 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 tends more towards you know any any other sort of scam. Um, uh, when I said earlier that I had some ideas, I was thinking about what are the responsibilities of poets and what are the responsibilities of um, of editors on on the on this and and readers on the small things and like for instance just a small thing if an editor was courteous enough to say what they wanted in a cover letter how many of us have like faced that block on submittable and gone do they want do they want this what should i do and if the editors are just courteous enough to say this is what we want in a cover letter um that would be great um, and of course there's the response thing. And I know that Tim, you agonize over this, how to be as courteous as possible in response. You, you don't say, I just got one the other day saying, wow, that poem was just two or three, uh, revisions away from being something we would take. And, you know, that's not polite, right? That's, that's not exactly, uh, courteous. So I think there are these, these, um, these things that poets and obviously we talked earlier about poets not being evil to to editors and actually being appreciative of the fact that most editors are not doing this for a living most are curators we can say most are doing it out of love for poetry for goodness sake um and uh you know uh, some many of them spend their own nickels and dimes maintaining websites and people are as evil to them Tim as they are to you and and I think poets obviously have this you know 
that, that there should that they should have the courtesy to to not be evil. Um, and then I have one that is a really small nitpicky thing, and I don't know if this has happened to the rest of your your poets, but some uh, when I when I have a poem published in a journal that I'm particularly pleased with the poem or the journal, and I post it online, share the poem. Um, there's one response that strikes me as sort of discourteous, and that's when people say congratulations, as opposed, to, which is sort of like, um, I know that sounds weird to feel that that's not polite, but it almost feels like it's pro forma, as opposed to have you, if you read the poem, calling something out in it or saying what you like or um, and avoiding saying what you don't like, like that one I shared with you, Tim, earlier in the week about uh, Michael's poem. Um, uh, there's just there's got to be some social media sense of courtesy of how we encounter other people's poems. Um, and I think one thing that's polite is read it. <laughs> If you encounter it, read it and, and have something to say about it. That's what we poets um, hunger for is sort of like this interaction about the work. Um, so um, I think I have one more. Well, that's it. I covered I covered all those thoughts that I told you about, Katie, uh, when I when I um, saw what the um, uh, prompt was about for this week. Yeah, another thing that gets me for sharing on social media is the, um, and I think this is a symptom of the MFA culture that poetry has been housed in for so long, but a lot of times you'll see, you'll post something and then the comments will be some kind of critique of the poem, as if this is not a finished product and it's up for some kind of debate about whether or not the comma should be here or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that happens all the time. I, people have complained, like in our groups for Rattle, like the Anything Goes poetry group on Rattle, that like they just want to post a poem and everybody keeps coming in and saying, you know, I think it's great, but this stanza doesn't work or whatever. And, you know, sometimes we don't want criticism like that. We just want to share and have um, experiences, you know, share experience with the world and, and maybe have it added on, but not, you know, nitpick like that, like you would if it was a classroom. And I, I see that a lot. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've not I've not seen that. But and I, you know, what I love is when people read and engage or just just check the box, you know, a heart or something like that or. A, um, um, but, uh, yeah, the critique and the sort of pro forma responses are the ones that feel like they're not the readers. This is in the case of readers are not fulfilling their obligation to be um, um uh, you know, good readers uh, or engagers with the work. But no, I, I've not seen that, Tim, where people, ch except for that one that I share with you where my poet friend chimed in and said, oh, this is not really a very good poem. Well, everybody was like loving it. This was Michael's, Michael Mark's um, Poets Respond poem. And I got so many people who were so like really wanted to comment about how the poem engaged them. And then this one person who said, well... It's a little chatty. <laughs> that was not polite. Wow. I, I can't believe that anybody disliked this Michael Mark poem. I'll have to pin it at the top, but this is a really stunning PR poem. Uh, I think, Tim, you guys published that like a week and a half ago, roughly, Michael Mark's poem. Yeah, it was a week before last Sunday. Yeah, yeah that was, yeah. So, I, but I, I found it really interesting what you're saying, Dick, about 
the idea of commenting congratulations on a poem. Now, so I come from a, a poker background where like it was very common to be like, I won this tournament. And then everybody's like, congratulations. And so I guess I see it slightly differently just because like, you know, when you win a poker tournament, it takes luck, but it also takes a lot of skill. And so I guess if I was thinking about the same way, then I would be like more complimenting the skill involved in, you know, that they probably worked for years to accumulate that eventually led with luck to winning the tournament, so to speak, because obviously with publishing poems, there's an element of luck uh, to it too. But I'd never thought about the idea of, you know, I knew congratulations wasn't the best thing to put on a post like that. Like, of course, we all want everybody to read our poems, particularly the ones that we're proud of. But at the same time, I wouldn't have thought of it as a kind of, you know, diminutive thing to, to comment. And now you have me thinking a lot differently about it. Oh, I think so I much of what... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dick. Yeah, my guess is, Katie, you are more on the side of right on this one. This could be just, you know, like an old fuddy-duddy who's <laughs> just responding, just feeling curmudgeonly when be, uh, for no reason. No, I think there's definitely something to that, Dick, and it's. I think it has to do with, again, how how much poetry has been housed in academia and the effect it's had on it that we don't even realize. Because you see it a lot as well, where. Um, you know, publications is kind of like a notch on a bedpost mm. because we have this so many writers are professors and there's this publisher parish world in academia where you have to keep cranking stuff out. And if you've had and you want a list of for your CV, a list of publications, and it looks better if you've had 100 different magazines publish your work than if you've had 50 do it twice. And so there's this whole sense of, um, you know, that, that it's a notch there to, to give a high five to rather than about the art itself. I think that comes up a lot. Uh, I, I, I think that might be the thing that that that's sort of getting at me when I just see that pro forma response. So now I'm back on my side, Katie. Sorry. <laughs> I'll have to figure out which side I'm on. I mean, it's definitely I guess I would argue that it's not, you know, there are good readers and I appreciate people who read my poem, but it's also not on them to read my poem. So like if somebody just wants to say like, good job, you got your poem published. I'm not going to read it, bro, but you know, it's out there. That's like something that that alone is something that like they didn't have to do. You know, nobody of course has to read my poems uh, aside from my mom when I text them to her who kind of does. <laughs> besides that nobody has to and so I kind of view any interaction like there are definitely tiers of interaction like for example I promised Dick Westheimer I will never promise I will never write congratulations when you posted a poem it's gonna be really funny because I know you were published very recently by Banyan Review and now I'm gonna go back and look at your Facebook post and be like they shouldn't have said congratulations so I definitely understand that perspective. I guess I just view anybody interacting with my poetry or any stupid inane thing I say about poems, which you guys are so kindly listening to right at this very moment. I view that as a gift so that I don't have a right to even ask for it, really. I'm just hearting and and um, what, what what's the other? And laughing. Hopefully not crying. There was my, <laughs> I hope you're not crying. Yeah. George has his hands up, so let's go ahead and hear from him. Yeah, I think one of the issues with this thing is with interpreting what other people mean, that this can be a minefield because especially on email or, or social media, you know, you don't get the tone of voice. So someone could be saying, you know, oh, hey, congratulations, and actually have it be a sincere thing. Or they could be saying, oh, 
quote, congratulations, you know, it's like that, that kind of thing. So I think it's very difficult to be able to determine. I, I, I almost think there's no way around it. I mean, people are going to either misunderstand whether what you're saying is good or bad, uh, according to different points of view. Yeah, that's a really good point. And congratulations is also something that comes up a lot with NFTs with uh, when you make a secondary sale. So i.e. you've already sold your NFT to somebody and then that person resells it. And there can be the kind of thing where if you type, you know, if you're like, congratulations, and then it's like, well, to, which person are you talking about? Are you saying they did a good job selling it? Like, <laughs> kind of odd vernacular that goes along with that as well, for sure. And I think that Arjun wanted to go ahead and weigh in on this because he is an NFT poet, a prolific NFT poet. So even though we don't have much time, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Arjun. Hi, yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry, I have a bit of a technical issue. I just came home. Anyway, now what? what uh, the first thing I want to say is about the about the messaging. Um, a lot of people when they tweet out something like that, I just sold my NFT. I just got my um, poem published in so and such magazine. They're actually saying, "Listen, I did that." So, for me, a congratulations would be a nice response, actually, because if I would tweet out that, I would want to say. You know, I achieved this goal or I, I achieved this thing. So when people congratulate me with achieving that, that would be nice. I'm not, I would not ask them, the, can you read my poem? That's when I send out my newsletter, for example. So that, that would be, the etiquette is not just in the answering, but also in the original messaging, I would say. Yeah, that's a really good distinction in terms of it too. So like, when you're actually sharing the poem, like Dick Westheimer, I mean, I believe that, you know, that's what you were speaking about too, was, you know, exactly sharing the poem. That's kind of what you're looking for versus Arjun, more of a tweet that's like, oh, I'm so happy. You know, like when I tweet Arjun that you collected something of mine, like I'm so happy that this resonated with you and whatever, um, then, you know, somebody can just say congrats. And I'm like, yay, they're on my team. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all it takes sometimes. Yeah, that's true. It's true. And I think, you know, coming back to what, what was been said earlier, uh, a lot of it's also about transparency. Uh, and I think etiquette is a very difficult thing. Um, it's it's very much social conventions and a lot of them are very culturally uh, um, determined. I think etiquette in the Netherlands might be different than etiquette in the US. And then if we go to Asia, it might be a completely different thing as well. And I think that's the big difference with uh, the NFT or the Web3 world um, and a lot of the traditional publishing. A lot of the traditional publishing is very uh, in, in silos in terms of cultural aspects, whilst in Web3 and NFTs, it's very multicultural. So um, I think transparency is the most important ethos uh, not just about where you mint or where you publish, but also about what you are saying when you message. So keep it simple and clear. Yeah, I think I think transparency and um, and empathy too. Just the oh, idea yeah. to keep in mind that we're always, you know, when we make art, we're doing something very personal, and when we curate art, we're doing something very personal too. And we're trying to, you know, mostly trying to do what's best about it. And if we're not you know, some of the few scammers out there, then, then we're all working in a, in a, as a community to try to bring art forward. And so keeping that in mind and remembering that people on the other end of social media or, or whatever interaction you're having are human beings is the key to it all too. And that's how to stay on the right side of the uh, poetic kit. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would just very briefly. I, I think there was like in the 1930s a Dutch book that wrote about. Um, it was a, a, a literary book, and it wrote about the uh, International World Magazine, and it was exactly the scheme that you were mentioning about the Who's Who book. So they would sell advertisements to companies, and then they would publish that magazine for the companies who paid for the advertising, and that's it. So it, it, the scheme is as old as uh, publication, probably. Yeah, it definitely is as old as it probably goes back even further than that. Yeah, okay. probably on the walls of caves, there was like a list. You really wanted your handprint up there. It was prestigious. <laughs> you could be like give a hunk of meat and have your handprint in the cool part of the cave or something like that, I bet. But that was Arjun. I'm sorry you had the technical issues earlier, but you really came in and summarized things so perfectly. And I just have time for the closing poem, which I put up too. And I'm not surprised that I'm going to be reading the shorter one. So this ties into etiquette for me because I think uh, of the proper side of etiquette with, with that. And so this is called uh, My Mother's Hat by Robert Heaton. She kept them high on the top shelf in boxes big as drums, bright crescent-shaped boats with little fishnets dangling down and wore them with their best dress to teas, coffee parties, department stores. What a lovely catch, my father used to say, watching her sail off into the afternoon waters. So thank you guys so much for joining us. I thought this was a really fascinating discussion. I am now looking at how to both be a more ethical or poetical <laughs> person in terms of reading poetry as well. Thanks to Dick Westheimer who came up with, uh, with looking at it as a reader and from that point of view too. So I won't be commenting congratulations quite as much, I think, after this space. And Tim, do you remember what next week's topic is? So we can share. You wanted to do a show on sonnets. So let's talk about sonnets next week. Which I have to give Joe Barca credit to his idea, I believe, for us to do a a whole show on sonnets. Sonnets are my favorite poetic form. It's going to be even bigger challenge, perhaps, than this week to keep it to an hour, which I failed at this week. So I'm sorry, guys. But thanks so much to everybody who's talking, everybody listening, and of course to my co host, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Always a pleasure. And I think we could have talked a lot more. I mean, we barely touched the surface of this topic. I know it's so hard, but I have to like, I have to be good about the hour because I don't want people to hate me. So (laughs) thank you guys. Okay, well, thanks everybody. I'll see y'all later. Have a great day. Bye.